0: Morning. Oh boy. Uh, it's my first summer here, and I was warned about summer uh, here at Springville. I was warned about cottages and vacations and stuff. So your energy is going to have to be up, right? Amen? All right, so we're going to wrap up our series called Next Door today, uh, looking specifically at evangelism. Now the last couple weeks, we've kind of had an on-ramp looking at the posture for evangelism specifically looking at hospitality and inviting strangers to be known and heard and welcomed. We got to see that that's actually at the center, at the heart of how Jesus proclaimed the good news of the gospel and how the early church practiced that too, specifically around the table, right? So a lot of you this week were like, the table, meals, right? And you went out and you practiced hospitality around the table. But today, I want to finish talking about evangelism proper specifically. And if you remember when we started the series, I, I mentioned that evangelism today, uh, depending on how you think about it and how you define it, evangelism is a little stranger than it used to be, right? And all the introverts said amen and rejoiced. But The reason why it's stranger isn't that we need to step away from it, but it's because our culture has changed so much in its familiarity with the Christian message and the gospel itself. So we're in a stranger place when it comes to how we understand the culture needs to hear the gospel and receive it. That's why it's stranger. So as Christians, we are now living in a post-Christian culture, meaning we're the minorities, And largely, most of our neighbors, most of our friends and colleagues, because of our pluralistic culture and and, and our ethnic diversity and religious diversity, most people that we come across with are probably not as familiar with the Christian message as we think they are, or as we assume that they are. So because of this, evangelism itself, evangelism that worked really well 40 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 5 years ago, might need to adapt and change. Might not be as effective as it once was, because change requires change. Some of the work that I'm doing on my doctoral studies right now is looking at exactly this, post-Christian culture, and how to understand it, and how to contextualize the gospel there's a book uh, by an uh, uh, Anabaptist pastor in the UK called Stuart Murray, and he identifies some of the reflexes of our Christian heritage, some of the things that we're like, well, this, is, this has got to work, like this is kind of just our, our reflex or our impulse, and he identifies a few of those impulses when it comes to our Christian heritage in Western cultures, and specifically the impact that it has on evangelism. Here's a couple. The first he mentions is a reliance on come and see rather than us going and doing. That we kind of still have this impulse or this reflex that people actually want to be here or people are even interested in being here. Now, it's not that we're not going to continue to invite them here. It's that we assume that more people have church going in their nervous system. But that's not the case anymore because of our cultural landscape. The second thing he mentions is an assumption that the Christian story and Christian beliefs are known and understood. Now, I think understood is the the core thing there, right? Some people could tell you, like, what is Christianity about? They might be able to tell you a few things, but whether they understand the heart of the Christian message and worldview, that's a different issue altogether, right? Right? And evangelism of the last few decades has really worked well when it's tried to capitalize on a familiarity with the gospel that people had, and then trying to encourage them to live in light of what they already know. That's, That's what we've seen over the last few decades. But that's not the case anymore. And then third and finally, the other assumption that we have is that church going itself is a normal social activity, and that people are actually comfortable here. That's the assumption. Many of our secular, non-Christian friends and neighbors would it, aren't even thinking about being here. And when they are here, there's a lot of strangeness to being here. So what does it look like to not get rid of the strangeness because followers of Jesus, we believe strange things, amen? Like the Apostle Paul calls the gospel foolishness to the Greeks. And that Greek word is moronic, right? There's some strange things about what we believe. They just happen to be true. So how do we kind of wrap the truth of the gospel in a way that is welcoming to those who are not familiar with the gospel? Those are just a few of the challenges that he identifies about a post-Christian culture and that's what we're living in today. So today, I'm not going to get into kind of tips and specific ways to share the gospel because I think Pastor Ed, as well as Byron, have been doing a really good job equipping us on that level when it comes to evangelism and some of the door-to-door work and going out into the harvest that we've been doing. But what I want to do is I want to look specifically at a few ways that we can be thinking about practicing evangelism as outsiders in our culture today and how specifically we can start thinking about being equipped for evangelism in a post-Christian Canada where most people have more differences than similarities with us. All right, is that good? We can do that work today? Good. One of my favorite definitions of evangelism that I ran into many years ago is that evangelism is two uncomfortable people talking to each other. I really like that because there is something to it. There's something like just about evangelism and getting to that point where you're ready to share the gospel with somebody where you're just kind of like, Ugh, I don't really know how to do this. I don't know how not to do this. I don't know what to say or what not to say. And there's something strange about it. But to get at a better definition of evangelism, first we have to understand the word evangelism that we use today is not in your Bible. It's not in your Bible. But... The Greek word euangelizo is everywhere. And that's where we get the word evangelism. That word euangelizo means a good news announcement, a public service announcement, a heralding of something that has happened that changes everything. That's what gospeling is. So when we think about evangelism, we have to think about gospeling. We have to think about a good news announcement of something that has been accomplished, something that has literally changed the fabric of time and space. That's evangelism. And when we see it worked out throughout Scripture, we see that the gospel simply is just sharing the message of Jesus in a way that it can be considered by someone. It's the consideration part that's really important. That we would share the gospel in a way that we would invite someone to consider Jesus and the good news of the gospel. Consideration is an important term because conversion is not within our control, right? Have you ever tried to convert someone? Doesn't work. But what we can do is speak about the gospel and really habituate the gospel in our own lives through the ordinary stuff of life and then speak about it in a way that we're constantly inviting people to consider Jesus. That's evangelism. And I know sometimes we, have you ever heard the saying, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words? You know that one? It's a a good one. Like, I understand. Actions do speak louder than words. I mean, I just yelled at you for two weeks about our actions of hospitality, right? That's important. However, for evangelism to actually be evangelism, it needs to actually announce good news. Amen. There needs to actually be a clear presentation of the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done. After all, the gospel is not just kind of theological teachings or opinions or perspectives or good advice on how to live your best life now. The gospel is good news about something that the God of creation has accomplished to rescue sinners. That's the gospel. So evangelism, yes, has to be embodied in the way that we practice hospitality. But it also has to get out of our mouths at some point. That's key to evangelism. And so I want to show us how central evangelism and sharing the gospel is to the mission of the church, to the mission of the early church. We'll look at a few passages this morning. But the first is in Matthew 28. No one has the Great Commission. Most of us are familiar with these verses. But watch what it says. Jesus comes to his disciples. and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have told you, commanded you. And behold, it's in that work that I'm with you always to the end of the age. Did you notice right there that Jesus starts with, he doesn't just go, now go and say all this stuff. He starts with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? To him. Therefore, because I'm already in control and I have all authority, go out and meet me where I'm already at work and tell people about what you've experienced and witnessed. That's the mission of the church, amen? Uh, Mark 16, let's look at that. We'll see it said differently. Mark 16, verse 15, watch. And he said to them, same thing, great commission, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Notice that in the mission of the church, the central thing is that we would be a people who is telling somebody. Amen? That we would be a people who are telling somebody about what this is. Uh, The Apostle Paul, when he writes a letter to Timothy as a young pastor just mentoring him, he says, preach the word and do the work of an evangelist. Preach the word and then do the work of an evangelist. That that's, that's our call is to proclaim the good news of the gospel and then go out and embody it, yes, with, with flaws and weaknesses, but to actually embody the gospel, that that's central to the mission of the church. So we can't get off so easy and be like, ah, post-Christian culture, bah, right? That this is actually central to the mission in any cultural moment we find ourselves. That, that we actually have a responsibility to take the gospel that never changes and get it into the nervous system of the culture that's always changing, right? That's, that's this, that's evangelism here. Uh, I remember Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers himself said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Mm. Saying it in the way that only Spurgeon can get away with, right? Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Notice here that Jesus is not telling his disciples to add the great commission to their lives. Like, well, okay, live your life and then add it to to your life, your already busy suburban life, right? Jesus is saying that the entirety of our lives is the Great Commission. That the entire rhyme and reason of our life, the very purpose of the church and those that belong to the church is to be a part of the Great Commission. And here's here's what I think. I think the early church was so impacted by this call because they were already products of it. That they had already experienced a missionary God who sought them out, pursued them, rescued them, changed them and said, what I've just done to you, I wanna do to others. So go out and testify and be witnesses to what I've done. And that's the same with us today. The majority of us who are followers of Jesus are sitting here because someone did what? Shared the gospel with us. Some of you are here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're here because you've heard something about the gospel and you're starting to lean in. You're starting to think about it. You're starting to consider Jesus. That's what an evangelistic culture does to the life of the church. So we're sitting here because of the mission of the church. We're sitting here because of evangelism. We're sitting here because somebody said something about the gospel that encouraged us and invited us to consider it. Are you with me on that? Donald Whitney, the the author on spiritual disciplines, wrote this about evangelism. Listen. Listen. Evangelism is a natural overflow of the Christian life. Okay, some of us need to hear that. We should all be able to talk about what the Lord has done for us and what he means to us. But evangelism is also a discipline. Unless we discipline ourselves for evangelism, it's very easy to excuse ourselves from ever sharing the gospel with anyone. I think that's really convicting. And I think that's very true that yes, we should be able to just out of the overflow of our life talk about Jesus, but it's also a discipline that we need to practice. Some of us are out of practice when it comes to evangelism. Some of us are just in a season of life where it hasn't been conducive to it and we have to be even more intentional to practice it, right? That's what he's getting at here and I think that's true. So what are three things that we can consider uh, about this, about how to actually get the gospel and understand evangelism within our culture today? let's look at them now. The first is that we need to grow in our fluency of the gospel, but also in culture. So we just came from Quebec, right? Where bilingual living is a thing. I think we as the church have the responsibility to be bilingual in the story of the gospel, but also the stories of our culture. That we actually have a responsibility to, yes, understand the gospel, yes, have good theology, yes, be able to proclaim who God is and what God has done, but we need to also understand what stories culture is telling so that we can bring the gospel in a way that it's going to be heard and received by our target culture. That's the first thing. Now, some of us, when you hear gospel fluency, you're like, I don't know, I don't know what that means. Gospel fluency, when you're learning a language, when do you become fluent? They say when you start dreaming in that language, or you don't actually have to think about it when you're translating from one language to another, right? Are you dreaming in the gospel? Like, are you fluent in the gospel where you can look at everything that makes up your life and see how the gospel actually has bearing on those things? Or is your life still so compartmentalized that Sundays are for the gospel and everything else is just like surviving and staying alive? Gospel fluency looks like understanding that all of life has a bearing from the gospel and is impacted by the reality of it. We have to have a heart that is teaching and learning in gospel fluency, that we can actually explain the gospel, not just doctrinally, we need to be able to do that, but that we can actually explain it practically and how the gospel relates to identity, how the gospel relates to sexuality, how the gospel relates to purpose and destiny, how the gospel relates to moral and ethical issues, that's gospel fluency. Are you with me on that? So all of us, we can grow in this, but it takes understanding what stories culture is telling as well, so that we can look for common ground, we can look for touch points, we can look for kind of the yearnings and the hunger of our culture, and then find where the gospel offers them a better answer. Uh, civil rights activist John Perkins, who by the way is 94 years old. Unreal. I just found that out this week. It's incredible. He said this about evangelism. Watch. The job of an evangelist is to connect God's good news with people's deep yearnings. So evangelism isn't just about arguing and convincing people that the gospel is true, but showing them that the gospel is better. The gospel is good news because it offers a better answer to all the questions that our neighbors are asking. And we're a product of that, that we have found in the gospel safety and security and life, amen? And now that, that we take that and we go and we translate that into the cultural stories and the worldview that we find ourselves in. So that's gospel fluency. But also we need to understand culture. I think we assume we understand culture better than we do. And I'm not talking about assumptions of what you think people believe. I'm talking about actually understanding what people believe. We have to do the hard work like a missionary who. Missionaries take years, right, to understand the taboos of a culture, learning the language, translating the Bible, understanding the values of that culture, as then they decide, how are we going to bring the gospel into that culture? You don't just show up, ride in, and say the gospel however you want. That's not what the mission of the church looks like. The mission of the church is to take the gospel, be fluent in it, and then take it and apply it to all of the framework of that existing culture, right? Right? In geeky terms, this is called contextualization. Say contextualization. Just because you're falling asleep. I see it. Too many cheeseburgers and barbecues already. Effective evangelism is contextualization. Because evangelism is focused on people considering the gospel, it means that we have to communicate the gospel in a way that they will be open to consider it, right? That it will actually be heard by our target culture. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 10 makes this point about the gospel because he's trying to encourage the church to talk more about the gospel. And he says, like, how will someone believe if they haven't heard and how will they hear if we don't go and tell them, right? But hearing something isn't just it being said out loud. Hearing something also means understanding it. So we can't just get off the hook with like, well, I did tell them Jesus died for, my, t- for their sins. Yeah, yeah, but do they understand that? Do they understand the gravity of this? Do they understand the so what? Why does it even matter? Do they care? And how can you work with them to show them that that actually changes absolutely everything? That's contextualization, right? So this kind of calls us to look for cultural touch points. The Apostle Paul does this so well. Uh, We won't go there, but one of my favorites is in Acts chapter 17, where Paul is at Mars Hill or the Are- Areopagus, and he's just kind of like in the town square debating with people about philosophy and life and values, and then he quotes a mythical Greek poet, like he doesn't even exist, and then quotes a worship song to Zeus in his proclamation of the gospel, Right? Like that is him, he's taking things that are being said, taking things that are sung on 92.5, right? And taking it and being like, did you hear what Adele said there? Hey, let me show you how the gospel actually brings us a better answer to that. That's what Paul's doing. He's entering into the cultural stories. He's reasoning with them and persuading them to come and consider the gospel. So every generation, not just every culture, but every generation, must do the hard work of learning to translate the gospel into our cultural moment. Because every generation asks different questions. Every generation has a different set of values. Every generation just kind of inherits a different worldview. So we need to enter into those things and speak about the gospel in a way that's going to encourage and invite people to consider the gospel. So, things like the Bible says followed by whatever. The Bible says, right? Very famously, Billy Graham, arguably one of the most effective evangelists of human history, period, right? Often would say, the Bible says, right? And then thousands of people would run forward and give their life to Jesus. You're like, what the heck, right? But today, listen, the Bible, morally and ethically, is actually seen for many of people under 40 as a barrier to faith, not the, the way to actually understand faith. So what do we have to do then contextualize it? Do we stop talking about what the Bible says? Well, of course not. But instead of starting what the Bible says, followed by whatever view or perspective we wanna tell them, we sit and get into the lives of people in our lives and say to them, what do you think about the Bible? What do you know about the Bible? And just get them talking. And then the second thing for our evangelism in our post-Christian culture, we stop talking and we listen. Effective evangelism in a post-Christian culture requires active listening. Proverbs 18.13 says, if one gives an answer before they hear, it is foolishness and shame. James 1.19 calls us to be quick to what? Listen and be slow to speak. I think too often, one of the pieces of the baggage of Christian, the, our Christian heritage and culture is that too often, we, the church, think that being the loudest voice in culture is the way that we're gonna drown out culture's voice instead of actually listening to the questions that are being asked, the hunger of people's hearts, the hope and the purpose and the identity that they're searching for to then take the gospel and apply it to them. Uh, The Barna Group did a study recently called Reviving Evangelism And it was so fascinating to see what they got to learn of our culture's view of the gospel and their their own openness or lack of openness to the Christian story. And here's the one thing that came out of this. They asked about the number one thing that non-Christians look for in people of faith when they want to talk about faith. And guess what it was? That that person listens without judgment. And the second thing was that there was no pressure for an immediate conclusion. That was the second thing. It also discovered that there is a huge jump from millennials, my age, to Gen Z in seeing disagreement about a perspective as a rejection of you as a person. So disagreeing about a, a position or an opinion or a perspective to anybody under 40 feels, this is, I'm not saying this is right, feels or it's received as a rejection of them as a person. So disagreeing about ideas and just throwing, like, ideas out into the arena of debate, that's not actually the most effective way for us to understand how the gospel kind of hits and lands. Especially if you have entire generations who think that disagreement means a rejection of them as a person, a lack of belonging, a lack of welcome. So no wonder we live in such a tribalized, polarized cultural moment, right? To take one position is to be anti-another, right? That, that's just, that's today. It's always either or. We are so polarized, right? If you are vegan, it's because you're anti-meat. All the vegans are like, well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> right? If you're conservative, it's because you're anti-liberal, right? Like if you're this, it's because you're anti-that. Like there's no more discourse about positions and perspectives because we see them so tribalized. And so polarized so we don't have communities of thought and ideas we have communities that are anti another community right and here's the thing get off your phones because the algorithms are working against you the algorithms are literally curating your entire experience of the internet to only hear from people who already agree with you and to demonize everybody else over here that doesn't so what does this mean We need to assume a posture of listening without judgment, and that doesn't mean agreeing with somebody's perspective. There's a difference between listening and hearing somebody and understanding them. There's a difference between understanding someone and agreeing with them. There's a difference there. You don't have to validate someone's perspective or view to hear them. Are you with me on that? Listening, active Listening communicates empathy. It communicates that you care. It communicates that someone matters. It's nothing short of the incarnation. I mean, we just talked about it a few minutes ago, of God taking on flesh and and coming and, and being, like that's so key to the gospel, yet we don't tend to do this. What would it look like if we took an incarnational posture of evangelism? that we would choose to enter someone's world, that we would walk a mile in someone's moccasins, right? To understand them, not agree, but to actually understand how they've arrived where they've arrived. Why do they believe what they believed? What are they hoping for in that system of belief that they hold? And to understand that and how they've arrived there, we start to actually be able to say, oh, I can see that. I know, I know why you think that. I can see how you landed there. But the Christian story would suggest blah 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 blah. Actually, the the, you know the Bible teaches something slightly different. Can I can I talk to you about that? That that's such a different posture to how we bring the gospel to bear in people's lives. So just hear me. When someone feels heard, they're willing to hear you. That's what listening does. There's like a little cute saying that floats around, is that being heard is so close to being loved that people often don't know the difference. That's pretty wild. Especially in our over digital age, where we've lost the art of conversation, right? So here's what's interesting. Jesus does this all the time, but we miss it. All the time. Jesus does it all the time throughout the gospels. If you watch how he actually communicates, yes, he answers questions for sure, but often he'll question people's answers. You with me on that? He'll question people's answers. Someone will come and ask him a question and he won't give them a direct answer. There's like literally eight times, I think, out of 183 times that Jesus has asked a question that he gives a direct answer. Why? Because he's looking at the person and he's going, you know what, I'm gonna, I will answer your question, but let let me try to get at why you've landed there and who you are, and then I'm gonna answer your question. Jesus does it all the time. It's amazing. And I think this is a key ingredient to effective evangelism today with those that are in our lives. Especially with so much yelling. I know I just yelled a little bit, but especially with so much yelling. So many keyboard warriors just throwing things around without any consequence. Imagine if Christians were actually known as the best listeners. What if the church was known as, we, we were known as the best listeners and the most open-minded to people's perspectives and opinions, See, right away, you start feeling like a tightness in your chest, right? You're like, yeah, but we gotta tell them that they're wrong. <laughs> we'll get there. There is truth. We do have to share the good news. But what would it look like to assume a posture of, of those who would be the most willing to hear people, to listen, to understand, that we would fight to understand people, not as the end of its, in itself, but as a means to the end of bringing them the true and better gospel, that we would fight for common ground on things, even if it's really tough. And I'm telling you, Raquel and I were talking about this this week, our time in Montreal, if there was anything we got to see in such a post-Christian context, is that asking non-Christians why they believe what they believe and how they arrived there opened up so many opportunities to actually talk about the gospel. But if you don't actually ask that question, and you don't enter into someone's world and walk a mile in their moccasins, you're not going to have an opportunity to actually bring the gospel in in a way that's going to bear, with grace and with truth. All right, third and finally, evangelism, we need to understand it as an individual and a corporate responsibility. It's a both end. In the past, the individual responsibility of evangelism has been really stressed. Like, you, literally you, I'm talking to you, right? Me? Yes, you, right? The the call to evangelism was like, you need to go and share the gospel. Totally, absolutely. But we also have a corporate responsibility to live as a people that embodies the gospel and demonstrates it in a way that the world goes, wait, what? The church is different. You You guys are different. And regrettably, the church historically, especially in the last... Little while we haven't done a great job at this because we've been just as quick to cannonball into the mess of our culture and be just as divided and just as tribalized about trivial nonsense. Amen. You can say amen when it hurts too. Like we just—I'm not, not necessarily talking about Springville. Okay, I'm saying we got to own the church, the church's behavior. We, had to own, we can't just be like, well, that's not, they're not real Christians over there. No, no, no. We have to corporately take the responsibility to examine our witness to the watching world. Are you with me on that? So yes, we need individual responsibility to share the gospel. Amen. That's why we talk about going door to door. That's why we try to equip you with, with workshops and things and ways to actually speak about the gospel in effective ways. But we also need a corporate responsibility. There's one other time that Jesus calls the church to the mission of evangelism, and it's in Acts chapter one. I just wanna close there. We're gonna spend a minute here. Acts chapter one. So after Jesus says to his church, hey, go and meet me. All authority has been given to me. Let's go and get it. He says, meet me, and then I'm gonna tell you one more thing, and then I'm gonna give you the power to go and do it, right? And here's what happens. Acts chapter one, verse eight. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, locally, in all Judea and Samaria, regionally, and to the end of the earth. Did you notice that Jesus is like, hey, go share the gospel, period. He doesn't say that. He says, go and be on mission, go and be witnesses, and I'm actually going to give you the power that you need to go be witnesses. And that's plural. There's a corporate responsibility here. And notice that when the Spirit of God is given to the church, what do they get? What's the word there? That you will receive what? Say it. Power. Not money, not success, not acute suburban life, not happiness, not a life without suffering and cancer and death and trials. None of that. He says you'll receive power over and above all of that. That's what happens when the Spirit of God corporately just raptures the church in the power of God to go and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And right here, the word that's used in Greek is dunamis. If you can guess it, it comes from, we get, we get our word dynamite from this. That you can't not notice when the Spirit of God shows up and fills the heart of a believer and his church. You can't not notice. Because dynamite demolishes barriers. For what? To be witnesses. To be witnesses. Now, we know witnesses from, like, legal language, right? That If you're called as a witness, it's because you're called to give your perspective of something that's happened, an event. That's exactly this. That you and I, effective evangelism, is sometimes as simple as going out and sharing with those in our lives what has happened to us because of the work of the Spirit of God, because of the application of the gospel in our lives. And all throughout the book of Acts, I encourage you, just spend some time this week. Just flip through Acts. It takes you two hours and 15 minutes to read it in one sitting. I've tried. You go and read through the book of Acts, you will see it over and over and over and over again. That the majority of the time that the gospel is shared throughout the book of Acts, it's not by an apostle or a bunch of disciples who have completed a whole bunch of Bible courses, but it's by ordinary people like you and me. It's the ordinariness of the people that makes the gospel so powerful. Acts 8.4 says that those who were scattered, the church, went about doing what? Proclaiming the gospel. Springvale, we must see ourselves as missionaries sent into our culture by the power of the Holy Spirit before we see ourselves as anything else. That has to be central to how we see our lives because here's the beauty of this. If we're relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, guess who we're not relying on? Ourselves. If you want more of the presence and the power of the Spirit in your lives, you need to live in a way that requires it. Amen? Now listen, listen. Your life is not currently organized with the right kindling for the Spirit of God to blow because all week you fight for security and, depend- and independence and you fight for your own kind of stuff. But that's not this to be fully dependent on the Spirit of God, to go out and be witnesses in a culture that does not yet know or understand or have not yet heard the good news of the gospel is nothing short of the entire mission of the church. We get to just go be witnesses. Can I get a witness? (laughs) We just get to go be witnesses, right? We just get to go and share what God has done, what we've seen God do. Doesn't mean we have to know it all. Like, it's just like, I, I don't know. All I can tell you is that when this happened in my life or when God did this or here's what, that, that I'm just a different person. Here's why, here's what that means. Like, like, you can be as fumbly as you want with it. And it's in that ordinariness that God just tends to use it and do unbelievable things. So listen, lots can be said about the spirit of God and we don't have time. But there's one really absurd thing that Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit. And it's in John 16, verse seven. And he says, it's to your advantage if I get out of here because then I can send the helper. Like Jesus just said to his disciples, you're better off if I get out of here. Like some of us are like, oh, if only Jesus was here in the flesh, we'd be so much better off. Well, there's a verse for you. Jesus just said, it's better if I go, because then I can send the helper. Which means having the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit with us is better than having Jesus beside us. Because that's what empowers us to be witnesses. Some of us don't think about our relationship with the Holy Spirit like this. Effective evangelism is exactly this. Nothing short of inviting others to experience the God of the gospel. But here's my fear. You can't invite somebody to experience something that you are not experiencing. So how much of your day-to-day, week-to-week is actually leaning into a desperation and an invitation to the Spirit of God to change you from within, to fill you with more of himself, more of you, Jesus, less of me. That's when mission explodes from the church. Leslie Newbigin, the great missionary to India of the last generation, said that missions starts with an explosion of joy. <laughs> I think that's true that missions, that we'd be on mission, that evangelism itself would start with an explosion of joy because we would just go out and be so dependent and so desperate for the move of the Spirit that we'd be corporate witnesses to the work of the Spirit in the community that we we are in. So, imagine the statement that the church would make corporately to our culture if we refused to participate in the polarization, the tribalism, the toxic everything, the triggering of everything, a diverse people in the midst of such a uniform, divided people. Imagine the statement that the church would make if that's what we move towards. And that's not, that doesn't happen without the work of the Spirit. Apostle Paul in Ephesians calls us to be one in Christ and then he talks about the unity of the Spirit, that the Spirit is the one that brings that, right? So, I'll end here, because I have to. The danger of every church, Springville, in any age, is to become a place that meets people's like religious, consumeristic needs, rather than a movement of people that spreads to the ends of the earth to be witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the temptation of every single church. Let me encourage us to strive towards this, that we would actually move outwards and be a people of hope and grace and truth in a culture that's starving for it. That we'd be a welcoming people, a hospitable people to strangers who are dying literally of loneliness. That we would make our tables look more like Jesus's tables, the tables that Jesus sat at. That we would invite more people to consider Jesus. That we'd fight to listen and hear people's questions and challenges and and struggles as a way to share the good news about who Jesus is and how he can change everything the call for us is in Matthew 9 and Jesus says this to his church when he saw the crowds he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and then Jesus said to his disciples the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Springville, he's the Lord of the harvest. We cannot control people's response to the gospel, but we can roll up our sleeves and understand that the future of the church is in the field and not in the barn, amen? Let me pray for us to this end. Father, we are here as evidence of the work of the gospel. We aren't here because Just thoughts and opinions look the best. We're here because of the good news of the gospel, of what you've accomplished on behalf of sinners is true. I pray that you would massage that deeper into our hearts and minds, and that spirit, you would fill us with more of yourself. That we would embrace our ordinariness, that we would look for and pray for opportunities to be a laborer for you to go into your harvest, to find where you're already at work and simply open our mouths and be witnesses to the good news of the gospel, to have ears to hear what people are struggling with, the questions that they're asking and that we would question their answers and offer them hope. We pray that we would continue to strive to be in line with the mission of the church so that more people will come to know you that we would be equipped to continue to go out, be on mission for you in line with your heart as a missionary God. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.